Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney here from the Kia Studios on a Saturday evening slash late afternoon. We appreciate you making us part of your sporting weekend. As always, you can find From the Diamond on the Odyssey app. If you're not listening here on the radio, you can take us with uh, take us with you wherever you go. You can also subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure you follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J. McCartney. The station is... At 92.9 The Game. And boy, do we have a couple of hours worth of hot stove goodness to bring you. It's not quite Thanksgiving, but we're going to be feasting on all these headlines, Corey, throughout the month of November. And you can't say the Braves haven't already done anything. I know it's not what everyone's waiting for, but some little tiny maneuvers yeah, little here. Things, yeah. have, things have happened. Things have happened. Yeah, maybe this is the appetizer course right. of all of that. These are just the stuffed mushrooms or something. I don't know. What, what do people serve <laughs> as appetizers around uh, Thanksgiving time? Is there a, 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 an appropriate appetizer mm. for a meal so big? Because you know you're going to eat and eat and then eat some more. I will screw this word up, but I think it's what it's it's a chartreuse table. What's, what's that charcuterie thing? Charcuterie board, chartreuse, whatever, whatever the world the thing, the the, the cheeses things. It could be yeah. chartreuse. That's true. I don't know. That could be the color of it. <laughs> yeah. Either way, the color that uh, most players are looking for right now across Major League Baseball is green. That's what they're looking to get paid over the course of this offseason. And Corey, as we know, the World Series is behind us. Congratulations to the Houston Astros, and in particular to baseball lifer Dusty Baker, who really gets to cap. I think a Hall of Fame-worthy career at this point between his managerial work, his time as a player, and just the overall ambassadorship. I think that he has really carried a flag for Major League Baseball for, what, over five decades now, uh, winning that World Series as a manager. Uh, Quite the feather in the cap, if you will, of Dusty Baker. So congratulations to him. But with the Houston Astros winning the World Series, it means, of course, all eyes are on the hot stove, on the winter, on all of the free agency, the trades, all the things that are going to bring us up to 2023 spring training and pitchers and catchers and under, Corey, 140 days until opening day. So a lot of stuff to get into. But, of course, you mentioned the Braves have not just been sitting on their laurels waiting for a shortstop to sign in a particular one. And we're going to get into that, of course. But they've been able to make some moves here and there. But I think everybody is going to naturally be looking at that shortstop position. And Atlanta had to do a little bit of good housekeeping business. And that is, of course, extending a qualifying offer to shortstop Dansby Swanson. Now, of course, 14 players got qualifying offers, $19.6 million dollars. Uh, for a one-year deal for 2023. Most of those guys are going to reject that, of course, looking for multi-year deals. We'll talk more about all the other players getting it, but we know Swanson's not going to be accepting this one-year offer, but the first step on his free agent journey. So if you do the math, Corey, as we have each and every single week here on the show, it still feels like a six-year deal around the 130 to 140 uh, as far as millions are concerned. Might be the sweet spot for Swanson and the Braves. That's just me eyeballing it and looking at if you're going to offer him $20 million for one year, 
you do a little bit more over the course of five, six, seven years, then maybe you get up to the number I'm talking about. Yeah, so Fangraphs has its crowdsourced uh, results now, and they've got him uh, at six years, $141 million, so 23.5 on the AAV there, and that does put him a little bit further down the ranks there in the other shortstops. you got right. Correa uh, going at eight years, 256. you got Trey Turner at seven, 210. Uh, Xander Bogarts at six for 168, and then, of course, Swanson, six, 141. Yeah, and six and one forty one lines up with a couple of guys that we saw sign a year ago, which I still think, with being such a robust shortstop market, you would imagine a year later it will pretty much set at least the floor for a lot of these players. Is six and one forty? That's what Javi Baez got, and that is what Trevor Story got. Then of course you had Marcus Simeon, who went from shortstop to second base full time as of signing with the Rangers for I believe it was seven and one seventy five. And then Corey Seager was the big money man with a three hundred plus million dollar deal over the next decade with the Texas Rangers. I don't think anybody's going to get 10 years, but if anybody's going to, it would have to be Correa. Yeah, I think, you know, the age is obviously 28 there, right? And yeah. everything is what, so how far are you away from that magic number of 30 with those of us past 30? Uh-huh. You really don't want to act like 30 no. is that big of a deal no, anymore. But um, but then you've, also, you've got, I mean, Dansby's 29, yeah. uh, Trey Turner's 30. So I can't see anybody getting that long-term Corey Seager kind of deal. But if there was a guy to get it, it would probably be Carlos Correa, as you said. And I think you make that argument that, you know, Bryce Harper at the age of 26, 27, when he hit free agency, got a 13-year deal. So it's not outlandish to think that a cornerstone-type player that you do view as someone you want around for a decade-plus could be paid into his late 30s. Those deals do still exist, even for guys who reach free agency. It just seems to be a little bit more difficult to land one of those, and we'll see if Correa is able to do that in just how many years. But as we are not talking about Carlos Correa in terms of his bigger market, but we are talking about shortstop for the Atlanta Braves, if you do look at this deal and say it gets beyond that $22, $23 million per year over six years, which would be 6 and 140 for the purpose of this exercise, and you do start to end up in the 25 to $30 million a year range for six years or beyond, would you not explore the other available free agent shortstops at that point? Because while I do think there's still a middle ground out there for Swanson and the Braves, and you just laid out some very good numbers on what's projected for each of these guys, I feel like if it prices itself out and you're talking about basically being in the same neighborhood, the Braves are a club that I think could spend on one of these other guys. Will they, of course, remains the question. Yeah, and as we look at Dansby Swanson being you know, kind of ranked fourth amongst this group when you think about the potential of what they're going to get both in, in the total of their contract and the AAV, and you even look at projected war for this next season yeah. too, he's also fourth in that realm. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think if he starts to get into that dollar figure where you're talking about Turner and, and Correa's market value – do you? I think you have to kind of explore because as fantastic as Dansby was this past season, right. I've mentioned this before in the show, we've just not seen him do that in 162 games until this past season and obviously timed out as well as it possibly could have for him going into free agency. But I just think to me it's the, it's the proven track record and Carlos mm-hmm. Correa and Trey Turner and even Xander Bogarts have more long-term offensive uh, elite numbers than Dansby has. And that's the key word, I think, in all of this is the offensive impact that these players can make. And, you know, Carlos Correa is a guy who fascinates me because he's always been termed as a superstar. And he has obviously played on some winning teams, been part of a club that has won the World Series and a club that has gone to the playoffs multiple, multiple times. Didn't work out in that one year in Minnesota, but of course we know he's been a part of that. But I never have felt like he's been like, the you know the north star for that team or been the guy that's carrying all of the bulk for it because he's been on some really talented teams before and even with Minnesota last year where he had a great had a, a really really good year I still don't think he had the kind of year that put him amongst baseball's elite so it's really fascinating that still with him at his age in 27 28 
you're still projecting him forward to what he could become because I don't feel like over 162 that he's put up the eye-popping numbers that, say, a Bryce Harper had, a Manny Machado had, guys that got these 10-plus-year, uh, $300 million contracts. And, I mean, I will even say with Trey, I, I'm a, I love Trey Turner, right? I, I think yeah. just everything he brings to the game, you know, the, the power, the speed, the average, uh, all that stuff. Has Trey Turner ever been the best offensive player on his own team? No, probably not. I mean, you could argue neither one of these guys have ever been the best. I mean, frankly, Xander Bogarts, even Dansby, none of them have ever been the best offensive right. player, hands down, on their own squad. So we're not talking about A-Rod going into free agency no, around no. the year 2000. No. And so I think that makes for an interesting conversation, too, is are you better off with the guy you know if you're the mm-hmm. Braves and the guy you've helped develop to get to this point as opposed to a guy who you've seen do some great things? And again, you're not asking him – if the Braves were to pass on Swanson mm-hmm. and go 28, 29, 30 million a year to get Trey Turner in Atlanta, you're not asking Trey Turner to be the face of the franchise. No. So from that, I mean, that's the other side. But but this is this is superstar money. But I don't know that you're paying for superstars with this group of guys. And I think that one of the things you can make a case for all four of these guys is they're great in an ensemble. Yep. They don't necessarily have to have their name be the headliner for the whole show or the whole card. They have been part of great teams that have done a fair amount of winning in the case of all four of these guys. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that all plays out, and we'll be talking a lot about the free agent shortstop class as we continue on here on From the Diamond. But the Braves have also been busy doing some other things, and we knew they would, and they were able to make their first trade and sign their first free agent. We'll start with the free agent because it's an interesting signing, Corey. So we know that the winter is underway as the Braves are making these roster moves now. Reliever Nick Anderson cut loose by Tampa Bay. Inks a one-year split contract with Atlanta. He's going to get, I believe, less than $2 million if he makes a big league roster. And the split contract means even less than that if he happens to start on the minor league side of things, just if you're wondering what a split contract is. Uh, But Anderson, he has a big strikeout resume for the Rays. In fact, he had kind of taken over as their closer at one point. But he's on the road back from not Tommy John surgery, but something called UCL brace surgery, which he had in 2021. But elbow surgery, either way, didn't throw a major league pitch last year. I'm interested to see what the Braves can get out of this guy, but it feels a lot like the Kirby Yates sign. Yeah, low risk, high reward, right? I mean, I think right. that's that's the name of the game here. I mean, it had a, a 2.11 ERA in 23 appearances for the Rays in 2019, a .55 ERA uh, in 19 over the shortened season. Um, you know, did not make it to the majors this past uh, this past year. Or so, um, obviously, you know, if you can if you can get him into that mix of those that high end arms that they have, I mean, this is. You know, we, we've seen them. I mean, think about Tyler Matzik. You know, Tyler Matzik wasn't anyone that someone thought was going to come into a bullpen and make right. them demonstrably better. And he ends up, you know, delivering three of the biggest outs in franchise history. Not to saying that that's what's going to happen here for Nick Anderson, but certainly you take these low-risk deals, uh, and obviously a guy with a track record like that, who knows what happens. And I think it's going to be, you know, as much as anything, every single team is going to be out there adding depth to their bullpen I don't think the Braves are going to be done after adding Nick Anderson either. I think they could go out and look at you know other arms. You're going to bring in some veterans. Some of these guys are going to end up being in AAA, and they are going to be looked upon to help you out because as we found out with Tyler Matzik, with Luke Jackson, for example, you could lose some of the big pieces of your bullpen, and that would change the complexion of everything. So it's going to be interesting to see what arms are going to sign and how much they're going to sign for because – I don't know. We're, we'll talk about Rafael Montero a little bit later. Going back to the Houston Astros for three years at better than $11 million per season, it might be a pretty pricey relief class, if you will, of free agents. They're not all going to be Edwin Diaz with a record-setting contract, but it might be pretty expensive to fill your needs via free agency when it comes to bullpen, if nothing else. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, there's a lot of names that everyone knows out there. Edwin Diaz already having been, you know, gobbled up here, but, you know, Taylor Rogers, uh, you know, Aroldis Chapman, uh, Kenley Jansen, obviously, having been here in Atlanta, Craig Kimbrell, Adam Adovino. There's a lot of names you know, but there's not a lot of guys who, as we talk about being on the right side of uh, 30, I mean, there's just not a lot. Zach, Zach Luttrell, Miguel Castro. I mean, there's just not a lot of guys that you get excited about who are on that right age of 30. So I think the Braves pay- playing it safe there with a Nick Anderson deal is probably the right move. Yeah, I noticed something interesting on Instagram earlier this afternoon as well as we sit here on a Saturday afternoon evening here in the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game talking about the Braves making some moves and, and particularly in this bullpen. Jesse Chavez had an interesting post that he would see you in the spring Braves country. So Ooh. haven't seen anything announced by the Braves just yet, but that seems like a very specific place to be and a very specific team that he's going to be with. So Jesse Chavez back in the mix. We've seen what role he has played, and it hasn't been, hey, this is the highest leverage guy you get. But when you talk about, again, that ensemble of relievers, he has really picked up some important innings and gotten some valuable outs for the Braves in his multiple stints here over the last couple of years. Maybe he's just setting the stage for another trade. Maybe he's going to, maybe he's already said. <laughs> for his sake, I hope he does not have to go through that again. Yeah. Like, that's probably not the way that you would have booked your travel. Yeah. He had a layover in Los Angeles and came on back to Atlanta, but good for him. Either way, but the Braves have got a lot of other moves to make, and clearly shortstop is going to be the biggest domino to fall, but there are so many other things to discuss when it comes to the free agency, the trades, the payroll of this club. That's something we're going to get into a little bit later as well because there have been a lot of discussions about where the Braves' payroll could go, and this winter would seem to be another step in the direction that we've been going for a while of the Braves incrementally adding to that payroll and continuing to move on up in those ranks. We've got a lot more to get to here, and as we continue, I mentioned the Braves also swung a trade this week, and we'll talk all about that deal, what it means for the Atlanta rotation in 2023 and perhaps beyond. That's next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney here in the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Abe Gordon keeping us on track on the other side of the glass. We appreciate that as always, and we appreciate you tuning in here too from the Diamond. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find us on the Odyssey app. All you have to do is search for From the Diamond there. I talked about before we wrapped up our first segment there, Corey, that the Braves have made some moves, maybe not the ones that everybody's waiting for them to make, but those will be coming. But a first trade of the winter is always nice, and the Braves and Rangers uh, struck a deal this week. It sends Jake Odorizzi to Texas in exchange for former Braves prospect Colby Allard. So if you want to go ahead and find that uh, animated picture of Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, there's a name I haven't heard in a long time. (laughs) I don't know that we've been thinking about Colby Allard much in the past four years. He was sent off to Texas in the Chris Martin trade, of course, as the Braves were making deadline deals to strengthen the bullpen a few years ago. Um, it's going to be interesting to unpack what this was. And essentially this deal was most certainly triggered when Jake Odorizzi opted into his $12.5 million player option, which there's a lot to go through as far as how exactly it went from $6.25 to $12.5 million. But we'll put that off to the side for a moment because Atlanta had to send $10 million to the Rangers to get Colby Allard back. So along with Jake Odorizzi and $10 million, you get a former Braves prospect who took some lumps at the big league level. But let's circle the contract details for Jake Odorizzi. I had to work really hard to find out exactly what it was that escalated his player option that he had because I was kind of of the mind that if you got, you know, $6.25 million perhaps coming to you as the buyout of the $12.5 million, that maybe you take that and then maybe you go out and you get that two-year, $12 or $15 million deal. But Jake Odorizzi made just not have felt like his market was really going to be out there for that. So 
He opted in to his $12.5 million deal for 2023, which necessitated the Braves trading him away. And that went up because he had one of the most fascinatingly worded contracts that I've ever seen, a point system in which he would get a point for each start as a pitcher or a pitching appearance of 12 or more outs in 2021 and 2022. And that is how he managed to double that thing up, Corey. And for the Braves, that 40-man roster spot was about as important as anything else in this deal. Yeah, and obviously they have so many options for that fifth spot in the rotation. I think the last thing you wanted was a guy that you were going to be having to pay $12.5 million and not have a role for him on this team. And when we were talking about the first deal, I thought we were going to be going with Sam Hilliard for Dylan Spain, which was technically the I first trade of the offseason. I, I guess but, I was just looking at, at big league guys, but I should give Sam Hillard a lot more credit than I did. Uh, but anyway, the return <laughs> of you. Colby Allard here, and uh, I have Colby Allard, a soft spot in my heart for him. Uh, a few years ago, uh, him and Mike Soroka, back in my Fox Sports South days, got to take him and uh, Mike out uh, on the Fantasia mini golf course, yes. and it was the U.S. against Canada. Got to put on a blazer and be a golf commentator for the uh, the evening, so... Um, welcome back, Colby, and uh, did not have the finest of times there uh, in Texas, but um, certainly a guy that has four years of club control. The Braves mm-hmm. can obviously try to work him into that number of guys that they have uh, for you know the uh, fifth rotation spot. But uh, you know a guy that they had drafted back in 2015 in the first round, so he makes his return, and the Braves have lots of options now for number five, and they get to save. Uh, $2.5 million there with sending $10 million along with Odorizzi in that deal. Yeah, and I'm sure you would have rather not spent $10 million on Jake Odorizzi, but as far as the Braves' spending goes in 2023, I still don't think this is a deal that's really going to stop what their plan is going to be and the money that's going to be really available to them as you look at where the Braves have been you know, trending when it comes to their overall payroll. We'll talk a little bit more about this later on in the show. I just, I guess I'm pointing out that in years past, if you heard about the Braves having to eat $10 million and send $10 million away in a trade, you might have started to get a little bit of anxiety because you're thinking, oh, well, these are very limited funds, and how many more moves can they possibly make this winter? I just don't get that feeling anymore, and I base it on what's been going on for the last three or four years. Yeah, I think you kind of have to like eating money to get rid of somebody who's not performing, right? I mean, think at the end of the day, yeah. if you're watching from a fan's perspective, and obviously there's an outfielder that I think some people would like to see this thing uh, also happen to have happen with, but um, certainly when you think about Odorizzi's struggles, a 440, excuse me, ERA, mm-hmm. 524 after being acquired from Houston, it was just not working out, and obviously there are so many guys that they're looking at for that fifth spot. I yeah. think the fact that you had him hanging there, and I mean, I can't blame Odorizzi for taking the option, right? I mean, you look at the market, look at the way he was performing. I mean, yeah. this, this he wasn't going to get a, a qualifying offer. This was the best, and they couldn't, obviously, after the trade. So this was the best, that thing, mode for him. And he goes to a place that needs people to eat innings in, in uh, the Texas Rangers. And I believe Jake Odorizzi already previously in his career, maybe with the Twins, had gotten a qualifying offer before. So that kind of hmm. lets you know what level Jake Odorizzi was a few short years ago before he got his multi-year deal with the Houston Astros because – he had a pretty good year, I believe, that year for the twin. Twenty nineteen, yeah. And it was a smart play for him to take that qualifying offer at that time, if I'm not mistaken. So, as you look through all of the different candidates that the Braves had for the fifth spot in the rotation, I think you had a pretty good idea. It was not going to be Jake Odorizzi, and some of those guys. I mean, I know Alex Antopoulos said at the GM meetings that hey, we're going to give Colby Allard the opportunity to compete for that fifth spot. He is joining a very stiff competition. <laughs> this is starting to look more like a horse race, and I don't know which one you want to bet on, but. 
You know, you've got Ian Anderson, of course. You've got Mike Soroka, Kyle Muller, Bryce Elder. And you add in Colby Allard, that makes a fifth. I mean, Jared Schuster. Jared Schuster, you could go down the line, Freddie Tarnick. I mean, which guys could get the opportunity to start at the big league level? How does Atlanta evaluate some of these guys? But Colby Allard as a lefty with some swing and miss, I think is at least an intriguing arm to have, even if he's not on your big league roster, because maybe you see some things that you can fine tune for him. Because look, you check out those numbers with the Rangers. He had a little bit of success a couple of years ago as he got started in the season. Then the wheels kind of fell off. I think that as a reliever, there could be some value there as well. I know not every starter wants to turn himself into a reliever, but at some point I'd sure rather continue pitching than maybe get squeezed out due to the numbers game. And as I pointed out with that fifth spot in rotation, as it stands right now with no other moves being made, it is most definitely a numbers game for several gentlemen. Yeah, and you talk about a guy that has four pitch mix, right? And you mentioned Jesse Chavez before the break potentially coming back off of his Instagram post. There, I mean, it could you could very easily view Colby Allard as a long relief guy. I think he has the makeup, he has the stuff to be able to to. If it's not going to work out for him in a rotation, I mean, obviously you could look at him uh, in that vein because they do have so many different guys. But I yeah. think it's also worth noting that this is a guy the Braves know, and it's yes. not this particular all the guys in this front office, but this is still a, a guy that they're familiar with. And you bring back somebody, you know, maybe they think they've seen a little bit of this and seen a little bit of that. Maybe we can tweak a couple things. Uh, but they, this is a product, obviously, that they know. And again, they spent a first-round pick on him before. So certainly, you know, they, they saw something in Colby Allard a long time ago. Yeah, and it'll be interesting, as we know, to get to spring training and find out all of the different competitions and, and where they go. And that's just one of the big things that we always look forward to this time of year is stacking that deck and reloading and getting pieces and thinking about, hey, where does this guy fit in? What does this guy do? And some pieces are going to be a lot bigger and a lot more exciting than others. You know, you can play Monopoly sometimes and you have to be the shoe, but you can still win the game of Monopoly as you go around. Nobody wants to be, but there's still a purpose for it. And I'm not trying to, you know, denigrate all the fans of the shoe and the Monopoly game out there. And I don't even know if that's a current piece at this point either. Who knows? And <laughs> we're so far off the rails now that I need to stop with analogies and, and stick with the Braves pitching staff. But, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. And like you just said, I mean, if you can get multiple innings, like five, six outs, say, out of Colby Allard, that's somebody that can be useful for you. And someone like Jesse Chavez, who was a starter for a good portion of his career, and I went to the bullpen, went back in the rotation, went back into the bullpen. I mean, that kind of utility knife can be pretty valuable, and it's always good to bring in a guy that you feel like there's still a little bit of upside in, even if he's not necessarily the answer to one of the burning questions for this club and questions that, quite frankly, will not be answered until you see how people throw in spring training and how that plan plays. And then as you get into the season, as we saw, the fifth spot in the rotation was something that seemed to change on a fairly regular basis. Uh, now, we mentioned this before, Corey, and I think it's just worth bringing up because we're right here in the midst of talking about who could be filling out the Braves rotation. But should that group and the return of Charlie Morton, that group, I mean, that's competing for the fifth starter spot, Soroka, Ian Anderson, Bryce Elder, Cal Muller, Colby Allard, whoever else it might be, does this take Atlanta out of the hunt for another veteran starter? I don't think it does, and I think that the Braves' depth in this position – might be a place where you go to fill some of your other needs because other clubs are going to be looking for pitching too, particularly young arms. Yeah, I I still don't see them getting into that mix for that real elite starting pitcher when we're talking about that Justin Verlander, Jacob DeGrom level. I still don't think that they're going to get there. Um, I was actually kind of reading some stuff about DeGrom earlier this week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Andy Martino from SMY was having a conversation with Alex Anthopoulos trying to get him to discuss whether they would go for an elite arm without actually him? saying the words DeGrom to him, kind of just painting <laughs> it, walking around the whole thing. But yeah. one thing I really thought about was this: that with this was, 
Obviously, he wants to try to get around that $43.3 million that Max Scherzer is receiving on that current three-year deal, right? Yeah. That's the one red flag. Secondarily, the Braves don't do opt-outs, and the Braves don't do no-trade clauses. They've not done them under Anthopolis. And Alex did mention, you know, look, they've never done a $200 million deal before. They've done that. They haven't done a 10-year deal before. They've done that. But I still can't see them doing those little pieces that I think if you're looking for something multi-year for a guy like DeGrom is going to be part of the equation. But think about it this way, though. The Braves have acquired players who have those no-trade privileges where even when you get them, then they have their limited no-trade clause or whatever the case is. And of course, you get 10 and 5 guys to come along that can have that kind of control. I mean, Freddie Freeman had that before he left. And I know that that has been the way that it was over the past two, three decades of the way the front office ran. I'm just not necessarily sure that – I would let a no-trade stop me from signing this guy or that guy. Now, the opt-out is interesting for both parties, and I think that's why you see a lot of this being done is, okay, well, come on in here. We'll pay you handsomely to be here for this year. You find out if you like it. You have the chance to go out and maybe reestablish your market. I don't know that Jacob deGrom needs to reestablish his market, though, if we're talking about the elephant in the room. And when you're one of the guys who's been one of the best pitchers in all of baseball for what's going on about a decade now, you should have a pretty robust market out there anyway. Yeah, I just to me it's just the, there, there's been these steadfast approaches to Braves contracts, sure. and Anthopoulos has continued uh, that process. So I, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that they're not going to bring in a potential, uh, you know, starting option. I just can't see it being one of those guys from what is it going to take from an AAV standpoint and what right. those little particulars that could be part of the contract might be uh, required. And as we've talked about on this show, as we've talked about on Battery Power as well, there's just no way that Jacob deGrom is going to opt out of his Mets contract to go sign the same money somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, there is a reason why he's opting out of this deal. It's not just because he enjoys having a bunch of people call him relentlessly all winter and pitch him on going wherever he's going to go. And we'll talk about a lot of free agency as we continue on in the show and you know where a Jacob deGrom might be landing and what clubs are going to be in the market for him, what clubs are going to be in the market for some of these other shortstops, what clubs are going to be in the market for Aaron Judge. I mean, that's a big one right there. Obviously, the Braves don't seem to be one of the main suitors for Mr. Judge's talents, but there are going to be some clubs out there. And, man, you talk about Dansby having the career year, heading into the – free agency. I don't know if you can have much of a better season in general. Maybe the all-time best season heading into free agency. I don't know. No, we've, no one has ever hit 60-plus home runs and gone <laughs> into free a agent. free agency. So, there you go. Uh, quite simply, history yep. has been made in so many different ways. Now, the Braves, we've talked about, do have an outfield need, and I know that... They've got to figure out what to do with Marcelo Zuna. And we talked a little bit about having eaten some money on the Jake Odorizzi deal. And you mentioned that it's nice that you're able to eat money. I don't know if nice is the word (laughs) that the Braves would describe it. It's nice to be in the position where if it comes down to that, you can do it at this point. Yes, nice Um, option. I'm going to have a very elaborate clause in my next contract that says if I do a segment of four or more minutes and it adds up to a certain amount of points, it'll trigger a double for an option year on the back end of that. And I don't know any PD across all of radio that's ever going to sign that. So that can be my pipe dream. But they're going to have to get creative, long story short, in how they address this Marcelo Zuna thing. And I do feel like this has reached, as I said last week, critical mass in making some kind of move one way or another because that roster spot, quite honestly, is just too valuable to have somebody who's one of the least valuable players in terms of just about any metric you want to look at and the eye test in all of baseball. Yeah, I think it was wildly frustrating and to watch, and I'm sure it was wildly frustrating for Brian Snicker to deal with this situation where you had a guy that, you know, maybe you know, the peripherals and, and all the stuff with the, you know, the numbers that were in your face said, I don't want this guy on the field, but 
he was taking up a roster spot, yeah. so you had to find a way yeah. to get him on the field. So I think they they have reached this point where this is a winning culture, a team that's got a win a contention for uh, you know winning now, mm-hmm. and you can't let somebody who's not performing uh, eat a spot, no matter what yeah. the dollar figure says. Uh, they're still part of things. Yeah, I mean, if you had to grin and bear it last year to get through the process at that time, I get it. But I think that 2023 and beyond, you've got to really make some decisions of where you want to go, even if that money has to be thrown into the deal to make that happen. As we continue on, a handful of Braves are looking to bring home some hardware this award season. We're going to talk about their chances next as we continue on From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Take a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is from the Diamond, Grant McCauley. Corey McCartney with you on this Saturday evening from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Games. We continue talking about, I guess, this week in Braves baseball. It's going to start feeling kind of like Groundhog Day, Corey. It's going to be more like this month in Braves baseball. And then next month in Braves baseball is going to feel like kind of this month in Braves baseball. But you hope that as we go along the way that it's the uh, the friends we make and or the moves that are made that allow us to have a pretty good little story of the winter as we head into 2023, which will be here before you know it. Now, there are a few Braves that would like to, I guess, put a stamp on their 2022 by taking home some regular season awards. And by that, I mean the Baseball Writers Association Awards, which are going to be happening this next week. Just in case you're curious, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when these big awards are going to be going out for both leagues. starts with Rookie of the Year, then Manager of the Year, then Cy Young. And, of course, it wraps up with MVP. The Braves have quite a few different players who are up for these awards. We did a great episode on battery power. Make sure you head on over to YouTube, subscribe there, check that out. And if you enjoy, you know, making predictions or kind of weighing in, we'd love to have the comments. And of course, go ahead and subscribe to us there. But I think that this has been one of the conversations that has really permeated the entire 2022 season for the Atlanta Braves. Michael Harris or Spencer Strider? Spencer Strider or Michael Harris, who is going to win the National League Rookie of the Year? Because all due respect to Brendan Donovan, who had himself a nice season, it's going to be an Atlanta Brave that takes on this award, Corey. And I'm not convinced that um, it's not going to be a pretty darn close vote. So you had, you had mentioned multiple times here in the show that we would have this debate when we got to this point because we had said you know multiple times along the way, like how do you differentiate between yeah. what one's doing over the other? Now we legitimately have to do that and try to figure out which one of these guys is going to take home the hardware. Now, in a perfect world, you've got a repeat of 1976 when the Padres, Butch Metzger, and the Reds, Pat Zachary, ended in a tie for NL mm-hmm. Rookie of the Year, both getting 11 of the 24 first-place votes. Let me stick a pin in it right there. I would have to go back and really start digging through my 1976-77 tops to figure out where exactly these guys ended up. Maybe the early 80s is about as far as it goes, but either way, I don't know that either one of those gentlemen had seasons quite like Spencer Strider from a historical perspective or like Michael Harris from the young, dynamic, everyday player that helps a team essentially reverse its fortunes from being a floundering club with a lot of questions in the outfield to having a gold-glove caliber center fielder. Let me say that again. A gold-glove caliber center fielder, even if he wasn't a finalist, and a guy that nearly goes 20-20 and pretty much puts up offense that I don't know that you could have expected for a kid making the jump all the way from double-A. Yeah, and I think I sort of look at it from two different vantage points, right? Like, to me, Spencer Strider is the unprecedented—I mean, this is legitimately a once-in-a-generation rookie season for a pitcher against Michael Harris II, who elevated everything around him and, you know, meant so much to the lineup, meant so much to, you know, what the Braves were doing defensively. I mean, to dive into the numbers a little bit, I mean, you think about with Strider, you've got the fastest ever in terms of innings to get to 200 strikeouts. 
it took him 30, 130 and two thirds. Uh, you know, that was what Randy Johnson had, and uh, Strider did it at one thirty. Franchise record sixteen strikeouts September first against the Rockies. A two six seven ERA, thirteen point eight strikeouts per nine, which is a rookie record. Broke the record of Kerry Wood from twelve point six in nineteen ninety eight for the Cubs. And then he has a four nine WAR, the best of any Braves rookie pitcher since World War One, mm-hmm. and finishes just behind Freed for the team lead there. And then. Uh, you know, with Harris, you know, certainly, I mean, so much of it is tied to what he did both offensively and defensively. But I love the fact that you're talking about a 4.8 war, which is tied for Dusty Baker, our second Dusty Baker reference in the show, mm-hmm. for, in 1972 for the second highest of any rookie position player in franchise history. Yeah. I mean, you can just make a case for both of these, but... Um, we'll and get not into, be wrong. Let and, me yeah, point that I mean, out as well. That's the crazy thing, right? It, it, you know, Abe had mentioned this before we came on. There is no wrong answer here unless that answer is Brendan Donovan which is incredibly <laughs> wrong uh, but I think yeah, you can misguided. yeah you can you can really make a case for Harrison Strider and no one's going to be upset with you no I don't think so and I brought this up on battery power when I think about pitchers that have had the kind of rookie season that Spencer Strider had I brought up two names because they're the only two names I could think of one is Kerry Wood who you mentioned and he had a 4-4 war a fangrass war did Kerry Wood that year and you know his season probably most closely uh, mirrors what exactly Spencer Strider was doing. He was a couple of years younger, 21 years old, Kerry Wood was at that time. He went 13-6, and six, um, 166 innings across 26 starts. So he did throw more innings, but also he piled up the strikeouts, nearly 13 per nine, in building a 4-4 war. Then I went over and looked at the other one I brought up. You remember who it was? Because it happened way back oh, in 1984. Mike like Gooden. Mr. Don Gooden. 8-3 Fangraphs war in his rookie year. He <laughs> won up that the next year when he went 24-4 and with a 1-5-3 ERA and looked even more unhittable. Doc Gooden did that at 19 years old. I want you also to think about that for a moment. It's just insane to be in that particular, you know, I mean, there are very few rookie pitchers that are as exciting or as impactful as Spencer Strider was last year. So if you see him winning the other awards, whether it's the Players' Choice Awards or at least was Sporting, Sporting News, News yeah, yeah. you know, seeing him win should not be a surprise to anybody because there are not a lot of pitchers in baseball that can put their name on that list that really had that kind of excitement. I mean, Fernando uh, Valenzuela had... Fernando Mania, but even he at this point was not, or at that point was not striking out guys the way Spencer Strider was. He was, however, winning, 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 and throwing a lot of shutouts. He was awfully good too. But those are about the only three pitchers of my lifetime that I would put up there and say most exciting rookie seasons for a pitcher and go. He also wasn't getting Fernando wasn't getting people to grow mustaches, which is its own feat upon itself. But I know that Strider is part of the winning as well. But I go up with Harris. The Braves had a 468 winning percentage mm-hmm. before he got there, which was eighth in the National League, 687 after his May uh, his May 28th arrival, which was the best in the majors after his uh, after he gets into that lineup. So, yeah. I mean, I think you can certainly say the way he elevated everything around him. What does that mean? You know, maybe that ends up getting him some most valuable player award, uh, votes, as you mentioned, a little bit down ballot because uh, you got to put in 10 guys. He yeah. can easily get his work his way in there. But um, what he meant for that ninth spot in the order, what he mm-hmm. meant for that defense, mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, I'm trying to talk, talk my way out of my uh, initial response here, which is I, I thought about this for you know weeks, that to me it's Strider and it's that phenom-level yeah. performance that he had that ultimately wins out. But then I think about the overall impact mm-hmm. of Harris, and it's like you kind of just get torn between who should end up winning this thing. The two are inextricably linked because at the same time that you brought up Harris from Double A, you put Spencer Strider in your rotation, and it answered a question that I have not gone back and run the numbers of what the Braves' fifth starter looked like for the first six weeks of the season. 
I can't imagine it was very good, though. And maybe that's some homework for some other time, and we'll bring it back in and have the teacher check it next week on the show. But it, Spencer Strider made such an impact to that rotation, and it was one of those things that the question just kept being like, when are they going to do this? Because you, you felt like it was inevitable, you know, like Thanos, that yeah. Spencer Strider was going to show up in that rotation and what he was going to do and what kind of devastation he was going to do. It's, I mean, it seemed like he snapped away about half the hitters in the National League. It's hard to say that one is better than the other because I don't know that that does justice to the other one. I do think Michael Harris wins it, but as I said, on battery power, won't be shocked if Spencer Strider wins it. And if he does, it's 100% completely deserved because he was that good this year. Now, those are not the only two Braves that are up for awards consideration because there is the Manager of the Year Award, which is going to be given out on Tuesday, and that is Brian Snitker, Braves skipper, going up against Dave Roberts of the Dodgers, Buck Showalter, of course, of the Mets, Three managers, 300-plus win teams. The Dodgers set a franchise record for the most wins they've ever had, and they are a mighty old franchise, and they've done an awful lot of winning over the past decade or so. Buck Showalter, meanwhile, I feel like was the figurehead that the Mets needed in order to turn the corner and take their next step into being contenders in the National League East, and they won 101 games, which, you know, spoiler alert, so did the Braves, and who knows what would have happened if Game 163 was a thing. How would the last couple of games of the regular season been approached by both teams? We'll never know because the tiebreaker was regular season head-to-head, and the Braves, they did something pretty special. They tracked down the Mets from 10-and-a-half games back under the watchful eye of Brian Snitker and, I would say, the steady hand as well and had one of the biggest comebacks in divisional history to win the National League East. I just feel like if anybody has a story of overcoming things during the season, I'm not trying to discount injuries and inconsistency for the other two teams, but Brian Snitker, he started way, 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 way back through the first seven weeks of the year. Yeah, so this is Snit's third time as a finalist. He won in 2018. He was a finalist again in 2019. I voted for Snit in 2019, and he ended up losing out to Mike Schultz that, uh, that year. Uh, was fourth in each of the past two seasons. I just can't see a scenario where he loses out to the guy who he was 10 and a half games back of right. and ends up mowing him down to win that fifth straight division title. So to me, it, it comes down to Brian Snicker and Dave Roberts I know the Dodgers were, you know, I mean, none of these teams made it past the division series when we talk about all three of them. But Correct. obviously, that none of that matters. It's all based on regular season uh, performance. But to me, that 111 wins is the equalizer here because if you go back to the 1983, which is the first year that the BBWAA started handing out this award, there's been two teams that have won more than 108 games. The 2001 Mariners and the 1998 Yankees, Lou Pinella and Joe Torre, both won those years. Yeah. So I think historically speaking, a lot weighs in Robert's favor, but just I think it's that optics, right? If you say ten and a half games back, you mow down another hundred win team, yes, to be able to win a division title. You can make a case for either one, but I think Dave Roberts is going to win this thing. And here's the thing: you're looking at in the National League East as well. It's Dave Roberts of the Dodgers out there in the West, you know, where he was never really pushed because the Dodgers are a great team and they have been for a while. And then you got two managers from the same division, which should tell you exactly what kind of race was going on over here on this coast. So just one of those things. Now we look at Cy Young Award. Max Fried is in consideration there. And he's got Sandy Alcantara, who I do think wins this award. Uh, Julio Urias is also in this mix. I mean, he was dynamite for the Dodgers, maybe their most dependable pitcher throughout the course of the year. But once you look past the wins, I feel like for him, maybe the, the, well, the wins in the ERA and, and really dig deeper into it, I don't feel like his case is as strong once you start looking under the hood. All right, so let's do that. So Freed's 2.48 ERA trailed Alcantara and Urias, but Urias was the end of leader at 2.16. But Freed had a better FIP, 
walked fewer batters, allowed mm-hmm. fewer home runs. And then when you look at war, it was 5-0 for Freed, 3-2 for Urias, and less than 10 more innings pitched. So it's not as though Freed started a bunch more games and ended up with a higher war no. than Urias had. So I think he's going to finish second, and, and I know that that seems like oh, you're making a big deal out of a runner-up finish, but the Braves had not had a runner-up in the Cy Young voting since Tom Glavin in 2000. So Smoltz had the, the previous best, which was third in, two, in 2012, uh, excuse me, 2002, so, I mean, him getting him uh, equal footing there with Tom Glavin at this point, I think, says a lot based off that season that Alcantara just had. And let's talk about the wilderness that the Braves were wandering through in the post-Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox, and John Smoltz era. You were not looking at a bunch of Cy Young Award contenders. I mean, Tim Hudson was one of the most steady pitchers. He got some consideration here and there, mostly down-ballot stuff, no runners-up or things like that. Then you got into the 2010s, and you know you said goodbye to Tim Hudson, not too far into that. You had Julio Tehran throughout the course of the rebuild, and he wasn't getting a ton of Cy Young votes either. And it was, if he did, it was down ballot as well. Yeah. And you had a whole bunch of young pitchers or older you know, guys trying to bounce back and give you a little bit of something in that rotation. So to have somebody in the mix that you can say is one of the two or three best pitchers in the National League and really not have to bat an eye – that's something that's pretty refreshing. That's something, Corey, I could get used to. Yeah, you didn't mention Russ Ortiz, by the way. He was a third. He was fourth in 2003 when he had that 21 no, I mean, season, runners so. up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he was still top. He was fourth, so he still had, like, that top five. He still had a guy that, you know, finished yeah. somewhat high up there. But um, I know there's people that question the ace label, ace label on Max Freed. It's real, right? I mean, Max Freed is a certified ace in this league. I mean, I, I guess you could make the case for – Kyle Wright because of the wins, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the ESPN Cy Young predictor actually had yeah. Kyle Wright as the the predicted winner based on a number of metrics that they used, and he didn't I, even end up getting a, a finalist nod. I think he gets some down-ballot votes. Though. Oh, I think, he, I think he will, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Major League's wins leader is worth a little something, but it's just not the only thing. Ten years ago, we could be talking about Kyle Wright. Like Russ Ortiz? Yeah. He, could he have, was he, much better than Russ Ortiz, though, I will point that out. And the reason I didn't bring up Russ Ortiz, in case you're wondering, is the Braves still had two of the vaunted big three on oh, the did. roster yeah, when he true. was doing that. So I'm safely outside of the zone. I don't know. Still on Russ, Russ Ortiz' Christmas list. Either way, you're a Russ Ortiz truther in the studio. So <laughs> be that as it may, the Braves do have some guys looking for some awards. We'll see who's able to take home something. We know nationally rookie of the year looking pretty darn good. Uh, coming up next, we'll be sizing up the free agent market across Major League Baseball. We'll do it next right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And hello and welcome in to Hour 2 of From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. From the Kia Studios, Grant McCauley joined as always by Corey McCartney as we take you through a little trip around the big leagues to see what else is happening in the world of Major League Baseball. We talked a lot about how everything is going to go for the Braves, how we think things could go for the Braves, or at the very least, what kind of things the Braves are going to be looking at. But all of Major League Baseball, the hot stove was officially lit, and there are also some notable opt-outs that joined the list of free agents across Major League Baseball. Some of those, we expect, Carlos Correa, of course, opted out officially of his deal with the Minnesota Twins. Then you had Justin Verlander, which I was not overly surprised about. We talked about that possibility. Jacob deGrom officially opted out, as was long uh, rumored. Xander Bogarts, Carlos Rodon, Anthony Rizzo, he declined his player option and then got a qualifying offer for his troubles from the New York Yankees. So at the very least, he could get a one-year raise. So there's that. But uh, some interesting names that have now appeared officially in the list of free agents. And with these qualifying offers, Corey, we know that there's that draft pick compensation that is still attached to some of these players because during the lockout, 
they weren't quite able to figure out a way to put an end to what I feel like has been one of the silliest exercises in the history of free agency, which is attaching draft picks to free agents signing elsewhere. Yeah, I think that was one of the more frustrating things to watch, you know, play out this uh, this summer. Is the it fact that they, they, they got to that point in July that was their deadline to have something tied to the internet. And, and that's the frustrating thing too, right, is you were talking about things being tied to players moving in free agency, and then they were tying that to whether or not they could come up with the way that you accrue players to the international right. proceedings. Having so an international like, draft. Yeah, right. Nothing can stand on its own two feet no. in, in, in terms of these negotiations between no. baseball and the players union. But It's almost like it's contentious. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. And, and so here we are back with uh, the same operating procedure. But if you're a guy like Jock Peterson, this is a sizable raise, right? I mean, yeah. there's there's some guys yeah. that it could end up benefiting, but it's still a frustrating process uh, for everyone involved. No, it certainly is. And, and before we get into all of the qualifying offers, I should say, let's uh, throw out the 14 players who got them. Dansby Swanson, we mentioned, was among them, but to no surprise, Aaron Judge, of course. Trey Turner, Xander Bogarts, Jacob deGrom, Dansby Swanson, Carlos Rodon, Brandon Nimmo, Wilson Contreras, Chris Bassett, Anthony Rizzo, Tyler Anderson, uh, Martin Perez, Jock Peterson, and Nathan Ivaldi. A few of these guys surprised me just a little bit. I know it's kind of standard operating procedure, but you mentioned, and, and we start with Jock because he's a guy that, if you look at the metrics, didn't necessarily like blow you away. But if you watched him play all year, he had a really solid year, and maybe he just kind of felt like it, that you know, going out there, maybe the Giants felt more so that maybe there is a multi-year deal waiting out there for Jock Peterson finally. And if he does, we want to get that draft pick while he's on his way out. Think about it. He signed one year, $6 million right. last year. I mean, he gets a raise of over three times. <laughs> it's wild, right? I mean, if you would have told him last year, we'll give you a two, three-year deal for $19.65 million, he's probably taking oh that. Gosh, now he's going to yeah. get for one year, potentially, if he takes the qualifying offer to stay with the Giants. But uh, So you mentioned there were 14 players who received that $19.65 million qualifying offer. And I, I've mentioned many times spot track and the way that they use their metrics to figure out you know, their models model. yeah. to have market values for players. But there are five of these players who have market values that are below that qualifying offer figure. Tyler Anderson who was at 13.6, Jock, who was at 14.6, uh, Wilson Contreras, 16.4, which I'm surprised by that, Martin Perez, 17.9, and Nathan Eovaldi, 16.7. I don't think Wilson Contreras has taken this because I think no. he's getting a multi-year no, deal no. that's yes. going to outweigh yes. this. I would be surprised if Martin Perez takes it because I think he had a good enough of a year that he could get multi-year that helps uh, outweigh that. Same thing with Anderson. I could see Jock Peterson and Nathan Eovaldi taking this. I could, too. Those are the two players that, of the 14, look like it would make the most sense. It's just really not a, a case to be made because the other guys you mentioned in particular, with Anderson, Perez, um, uh, Chris Bassett, of course, Wilson oh, yeah, Contreras, yeah. those are guys that could all get multi-year deals, and I think will get multi-year deals. So that would be the incentive for them to decline it. It also makes it the incentive for the club to go ahead and throw it out there so that they can. Because if you don't give the qualifying offer, you don't get anything. Exactly. So it's, it, you're hedging your bets, if you will. I think that Anthony Rizzo could take the qualifying offer. I don't know if he's rejected it already. They have until, what, Tuesday afternoon yeah, to make this day, decision? Five days, yep. Uh, I mean, I could see Rizzo taking it if he wanted to just go ahead and have that one more year, and then he could go. At this point in his career, is he kind of more of a year-to-year guy, or would you think that he would want to you know, risk going out there and not getting nearly $20 million to play next year? I, I, I think that as you advance in your career, it becomes – maybe a little bit more intriguing for you than it would if you're you know, uh, in a position of value or in a position of, of need for a lot of other clubs yeah. and you're walking into free agency with just a much better case to get that multi-year deal. Yeah, and when you're 32 going into your age 33 season and you have, have declined. afforded this and you've already got multiple-time All-Star nods, you've, uh, you've got a ring, 
maybe he just starts to be more of a little bit of a, a ring chaser and he just kind of yeah. sizes up opportunities as opposed to paydays, which he, he's earned that right at, you know, going into his uh, 13th season there at age 33. Yeah, and why not, you know, do a little bit of both if you're him? I mean, you go back yeah. to the Yankees. I mean, they're a club that it should be in October, and if they're not, then, you know, we're all going to hear about it because it's going to be spread everywhere. And, uh, you know, you're just always going to know when the Yankees underperform, it's one of the big stories in all of baseball because – you know, they have spent as much or more than anybody has spent in the last, what, 22 years now? And they got one World Series to show for it. So, uh, World Series victory, that is. So, that's just one of the other many things that you look at. It's baked inside of, you know, decisions that the Yankees made but or have still to make. We'll see how this offseason goes because the biggest decision on their list, obviously, and the, the biggest thing they need to figure out is can we get Aaron Judge back? Or is he going to go somewhere else? Now, we'll talk about some potential landing places, perhaps, for some of these free agents as we continue on here. But that has to be priority number one for the Yankees, is figuring out, is there a reunion possible with Aaron Judge? And now that he's hit free agency, he has the opportunity. All you got to do is get a couple of other clubs really interested, and it might price even the Yankees out of this thing. And I think the Rizzo thing makes sense, too, in terms of giving the qualifying offer. You want cost certainty around as much as you can at this moment not knowing how high you're going to have to go on Aaron Judge depending on how many teams get involved here because you know what was the offer 215 was the was the the in season offer I believe 15 so, million yeah. if if you're now talking about this getting into the 300 350 million dollar range that really changed. I know this I know we're used to to using the words Yankees and payroll and thinking sky high here but the, the Hal Steinbrenner version of this proceedings is very different than under George and I I just I think they want to operate under the luxury tax as much as possible and knowing it going into these this Aaron Judge negotiations how much they have to play with and what else they can do around him based on what it takes to sign him. It's wildly important. Yeah, and there's some really interesting things, I think, with Rizzo, not to just harp on one guy here. That There's quite an interesting list, and why are we spending so much time on Anthony Rizzo? And it's because you look inside of his numbers. He was about a two-war player this past year, hit 30-plus home runs, didn't drive in as many runs as we've seen him in the past. He used to be a 100-RBI guy, pretty much guaranteed every single year. But his OPS and OPS Plus were as high as they've been since 2019, so he kind of rebounded as far as the power numbers were concerned. I think he started hot with the power and then kind of cooled off as the season went along. So I don't know that he's a $20 million a year player, but for the Yankees, this is a team that can afford to pay a little bit extra to have a player they know and like if, in fact, he does take the qualifying offer. Because I think for pretty much any of these clubs, when you do throw this thing out there, you have to think, if they do take this, do we have a spot for them? If we don't, then I guess we got to figure out who we're going to trade and how we're going to make it work. Yeah, Rizzo is forecasted for, through Fangraphs and a little bit different models than what Spotrac uses. They've got him at at eighteen million on an AAV, so they've got him signed for three years at at eighteen, so fifty four million. So. I mean, he makes nearly $2 million more than the, those forecasts if he takes that qualifying yeah, I just got to see the club that's given him three years and nearly $60 million yeah. into his middle 30s. But yeah. it's possible it could be out there, and we'll talk about it if it does happen. But there have already been some reunions and, of course, some free agent signings. And Clayton Kershaw on the Dodgers, another one-year deal to the surprise of very few, I would say. It's expected to be around $20 million, according to John Heyman. This is a deal that, again, it makes a ton of sense for both sides. We talked about it last year, or last year, last week. We also talked about it last year when we were kind of in this same boat. Would he be lured away to maybe pitching closer to home? He's a Texas guy. Would he go to the Rangers? Didn't last year. Apparently not going to do it again this year either. Yeah, so they've got him back one year, uh, around $20 million. So you think about what the Braves are giving Charlie Morton for this upcoming season, uh, Clayton Kershaw on equal ground here. And, I mean, when healthy, he's still an elite pitcher. Key phrase. I mean, yeah, two two eight ERA this past season and 126 in the third innings. But I think 
any team that signs him knows he's not getting 30 starts anymore. No. And we've talked about before with him staying in a place where they understand that. And the expectation is that we will, we want the best of you when you can give us the best of you is really the optimum thing for him. I mean, yeah. still 27.8 strikeout rate uh, this last season with those, uh, you know, the normal walk rates mm-hmm. you expect from him. Still a very effective pitcher, no longer the dominant pitcher of his era. Uh, but certainly, you know, it makes a lot of sense for the the Dodgers to stick with him and, and him to stick in a place that knows him all too well. Yeah, and the Dodgers will be hoping that, like the song goes, that they are getting the best, the best, the best That's of right. Clayton Kershaw they have throughout the course of his career. He's one of the greatest pitchers of our generation and is on a track to Cooperstown. Now, one of the greatest closers that we've seen in recent memory as far as single seasons are concerned, it belonged to Edwin Diaz last year, and he really kick-started the free agent party this year as he signed a five-year, $102 million deal to stay with the New York Mets. That is the largest deal ever for a closer, and it finally pushes a ninth-inning guy or the guy that you put the ball in his hands to get the saves anyway, no matter how many outs he's got to get, I guess, into the $20 million range, something that had never happened before. I mean, I guess if it was going to happen with anybody, it was going to happen with the Mets, you know, locking down this guy. Um, I I love the fact that, you know, Bobby Bonilla decided that uh, he's going to make jokes about it. Um, So that's uh, that's fun. You know, think about the deferred payments that, you know, all all the fun stuff with him. But I I do wonder if uh, if Timmy Trumpet like concierge service comes with uh, this deal, because I'm sure that that, you know, they got to make sure that they have that whole thing locked down as well. But um, obviously a fantastic year for him this past season. He really got, you know, the rebounded from, you know, after the coming over from Seattle and not looking like himself. But um, this is, uh, you know, if, if anyone, again, was going to do this kind of deal and overpay for somebody uh, for a closer role, it was going to be the New York Mets. Yeah, and Steve Cohen said, you know, in terms of Jacob deGrom as well, if he's going to leave, it's not going to be about the money. And then you knew that if they had someone who is as dominant as Diaz was, and it's not like we're talking about a 34-year-old closer either, that you're just wondering why in the world would you spend this kind of money on somebody that very clearly, I mean, father time is undefeated and is going to catch up with you eventually. But Diaz should be right now in the prime of his career. You know, there are just a lot of clubs that would just look at that and say, look, we can't spend that kind of money on any reliever. And as we've noted over the last couple of years, there are some pretty important outs before you get to the guy who's getting the saves. And you can win without having the quote-unquote best closer in the game. You can also lose having the best closer in the game. We've seen that happen before as well. It's just one of those things. Now, I did want to get to this before we take a break, and that is the Astros having a very interesting week, clearly winning the World Series. That's something to celebrate. They're going to be bringing Dusty Baker back for 2023, but general manager James Click will not be back with the club. That a move that surprised some. I mean, I know there was some discussion of it. The Astros offered him a one-year deal, and I think that uh, you know the response was some version of thanks but no thanks, and I'm sure that James Click won't have to be unemployed very long. There are a number of other front offices. They would love to have him either running the show or being one of the guys uh, sitting at the – the small council meeting when they make these decisions, that is a move that I think was a little bit surprising when you consider a club that just came off a World Series victory. Yeah, and the report is that Astros owner Jim Crane had to be persuaded and even offering him a one-year contract was, you know, what really wanted to fire him what anyway. Wanted to fire him days after winning the World Series. He consented, uh, you know, but insisted this is only going to be for one year, which is the same length as Dusty Baker's new deal. Uh, apparently, Click was deeply offended and kind of mm-hmm. took it to the masses there uh, at the GM meetings in Vegas, uh, you know, and voiced his displeasure and you know that did not uh, go well with crane who i'm sure must be a wonderful hang and now uh, james <laughs> click is without a job i have really come to the conclusion that jim crane is probably one of the people that i would get along with uh, not at all yeah 
Uh, and, you know, I don't have the kind of money that can say the kind of things that Jim Crane's money can. And if he wants somebody else to run his baseball club, that is, of course, within his purview. And he has decided that that's exactly what he's going to be looking for. Just a surprising move for a club coming off a World Series victory. And they did make a big free agent move by signing Rafael Montero to some money that I didn't know that was going to be out there for a guy 32 years old with essentially one good relief season and not a lot else in terms of track record. Yeah, so think about 2021. He had a 7-2-7 ERA in 40 games with the Mariners and then makes you know four appearances following the deadline deal that brought him to Houston. And then he has a 2-3-7 ERA over 71 games, uh, kind of just a stopgap yeah. uh, with Ryan Presley sidelined. Gets 14 saves, and now he's getting three years at $34.5 million. So, I mean, you think about you know the aftermath of Click, who's who's making the decisions, and makes you a little bit worried about the future there with Houston with uh, kind of these silly contracts. Yeah, all I have to say is James Click would never. That's right. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, we'll see what the Astros are going to be doing. Sands their GM and looking for a new one as they look to make moves that will – Hopefully put them right back where they've been, which is in the World Series. They just won it, as we all know. We're going to size things up across the hot stove and see some potential landing places for some of these big free agents. We'll do it next right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney. From the Kia studio on Sports Radio, 92.9 The Game. Time to talk about a little bit more of that free agency goodness that we got hit with as soon as the World Series ended. World Series stuff was a lot more exciting last year, but I digress. Uh, we do have ourselves a nice hot stove season to look forward to. The Braves among many clubs that are going to be looking to answer some big questions, none bigger than who's going to be playing shortstop for the Atlanta Braves, and will it be Dansby Swanson? That, of course, Braves fans are still wondering, and we'll find out as the winter goes on. But there are a lot of big free agents out there, suffice it to say. They may not all sign back with the clubs that they came up with. That's just kind of how it works. So it ain't just Dansby Swanson. There's a lot of other guys, and one in particular that really piqued my interest, Corey, and I think he's going to pique the interest of a lot of folks because he did something I didn't know was possible. He did a baseball thing that got superimposed into a football game, and that was Aaron Judge when he was chasing <laughs> Roger Maris's record and trying to break it. Uh, if he doesn't re-sign with the Yankees, which is far from a given, what club makes the most sense for him and what club could pony up for that payday? And gosh, I mean, while we're at it, Corey, how much do you think it's going to be? So I, I will kind of couch this by saying uh, sportsbetting.ag sent me an email that has the next team odds for all of these major uh, free agents that we're going to talk about here. So I can kind of play the odds portion of this as well. Okay. Uh, the Giants are the favorites at 2-1. to Because okay, that was my guess. If they, if they, Yeah, so... I mean, is this? We've seen Farhan Zaidi make a lot of maneuvers to make that team better, and obviously mm-hmm. they're two, they're a year removed from this, you know, very surprising season where they were able to kind of mix and match and play a lot of analytical stuff and have you know a, a, take away the Dodgers' run of of West Division titles. Yeah, but they haven't really been a powerhouse yet, and this would be the move that would unquestionably, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to change the dynamics of power in the National League West if Aaron Judge is wearing yeah. a Giants uniform. But, it man, you hurt. think about it. No, and, and, but are they willing to go above and beyond what it would take to keep him a New York Yankee? And I, I think it's funny that there's this notion that if he's given the captaincy, that that would end up being something that would keep him in New York by saying, you get to be the Yankee captain, that that's going to outweigh what, what another team might be able to just hit him with cold, hard dollars. But you got to think if there's a, a club that would be able to be in that position to get him back to the area he's from, right. it would be 
the San Francisco Giants. And that's kind of what I wanted to get into with him is I just feel like there's a lot of I want to say there's some fire there. There's not just a bunch of smoke that is kind of just going across the bay that might lead you to believe perhaps Aaron Judge would take a call from the Giants. I mean, there is, I think, some motivation there. And the Giants are a club that, and look, if you want to compete with Los Angeles Dodgers, you're going to have to make some big-time moves. The San Diego Padres have recognized that for a while. They made a big-time move at the trade deadline just to bring in a Juan Soto, somebody to bolster them. And that's not signing someone to an eight-year deal worth Thirty-five or forty million dollars a year. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I mean, I know Aaron Judge is looking for more than the offer that he got in season from the Yankees, which wasn't anything to sneeze at. But if you're turning down two hundred plus million dollars, and by the way, Juan Soto turned down what three hundred and forty million dollars from the Washington Nationals. Different players, different ages, different things going on here. But if you're turning down that kind of money in season, in your free agent year, and heading into free agency, and betting on yourself, and then you hit sixty-two home runs. Man, I don't know if it gets much better. And all you got to do is get a couple or three clubs to get into that, and you've got yourself a derby. Yeah, and I think if you think about the three that are most likely, and the Dodgers have the second best odds at Judge after the See, Giants, if he doesn't wind up in New York, wild. I mean, how in the world they they've just been so smart with the way that they're able to get guys that you know that they develop guys, and the ones that they're paying yeah. the big money to are not I mean there's not a bunch of them right I mean it's they're it's just they've been smart enough where mm-hmm. they've got the freemans they've got the bets and then you've got Gavin Lux and you've got Will Smith and you've got the guys that aren't getting those high dollar contracts they're still in this position and I think if you can get those three clubs to go against one another I mean I think the the expectation is he's going to get around 37 37 and a half million a year we talked during the shortstops would you pay 10 years for any of these guys Aaron Judge is 31 years old right are you going to give Aaron Judge a 10-year deal that's paying him $37.5 million a year? I think it's going to be a seven- or eight-year deal. Maybe there's some on the back end of that, you know, some bigger money that you can get that is involved with vesting some option years into it. And, hey, if you're still healthy and doing this or doing that or you have a finish of this in the MVP or you have 550 or 600 plate appearances, I don't know what it all looks like. I mean, you got to be creative. Clearly, Will Smith's – I know Will Smith, but uh, Jay Coderizzi's agent was – Pretty creative with getting him for 12 outs to get $12.5 million instead of 6 and a half. But that's chump change considering what you're going to be talking about for this Aaron Judge contract. I just find it to be, man, how many $300-plus million players can you have on one club? I mean, it's got to be pretty tough. They already got bets, and they're going to have another one with Aaron Judge. Then Freddie Freeman is making a pretty good chunk of money, and then they've got some other guys, and it's going to be, whether it is – you know, Clayton Kershaw making $20 million, and, you know, you kind of look around. There are some other players that they're going to either bring in or sign or that are going to grow into it and need a little bit more money as well. And I just wonder how many $300-plus million, $250-plus million contracts can you have? How many $35 or $40 million a year players can you have? Maybe that's the better question, and for how long? On yeah, one I team mean, in one year. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously fascinating when you think about a team that has you know doesn't seem to care if they go over the the luxury tax no. threshold and doesn't no. have any issue living in that world hey if um, they want a Josh fields they're going to go out and get him that's right and they're going to trade whoever it takes <laughs> and it may not work out but then again most of their moves have worked out but it hasn't netted them a whole bunch of World Series either I mean the Dodgers have spent more money than anybody in the last decade yep. they won one World Series and it was the 60 game season in 2020 and yeah that that's a World Series but They've had opportunities, been knocking on the door and come up short several times, including here in 2022, where they didn't get anywhere near as far as you thought a 111 win team would go. And some people felt like this was the best version of the Dodgers that we had seen at any point during their decade long run of dominance. But moving on from Aaron Judge, moving on from the National League West, at least for the purpose of 
you know, who else we're looking at here. Where do we think this this big group of shortstops is going to end up? Because there's Dansby Swanson, then there's this other trio where you do have the Carlos Correas, Trey Turners, Xander Bogarts, sweepstakes that are going to be out there, Corey. I'm going to go ahead and throw mine out because I know you got the odds this time, and I want to have my answer in before we get the official word from the odds makers. But I got Correa going to the Yankees. I got Turner going to the Phillies. I got Bogarts going to the Minnesota Twins because I think that the Twins, if they're going to give Correa that kind of money, maybe they get somebody who's a little bit more of a sure thing without an opt-out. And as of all of that, I think Dansby Swanson ends up back with the Braves, and until he signs somewhere else, I'm going to keep saying that. So I, I agree with you on Swanson. I'm going to give you all the numbers, though, based on if they were to go to a different team, okay. this would be okay. the best odds for that to happen. So you mentioned Correa and the Yankees. The Yankees have the worst odds of any of the team that are on this list. The Cubs are number how? one on the Carlos Correa list. So they're they're tied with the, the they're tied with the Braves and Dodgers for the worst odds. Carlos Correa of going so the he, the Cubs are the headliners for him. Okay, so let me let me unpack that for just a moment. So who has the worst odds of signing Carlos Correa? What teams? The Braves, Dodgers, and Yankees at nine to one. Okay, now the Braves doesn't surprise me because I I just have never felt like that was going to fit. But the Yankees have to me and to most people from the outside looking in as one of the most glaring needs at shortstop. I don't know that Correa would go to the Dodgers just based on a variety of factors, including maybe some of the baggage that goes with some of the things that have happened between his old club and the Dodgers. But, man, I wouldn't think that the Dodgers would be a a club that would be completely out of it. You know, And this is an odds-making perspective. This is not like industry scoop. Exactly. So, And Dansby Swanson, the best odds uh, based on these uh, for him outside of the Braves is the Giants. Uh, And then with uh, Trey Turner, the Phillies, which you nailed that one. Xander Bogarts is the Cardinals. Interesting. I feel like the Twins are a club that's going to have to spend money to get themselves at or to the top of the American League Central, which is a place that they found themselves for a lot of the season before falling apart in the second half. The Correa move was a bold move for the Minnesota Twins. It kind of broke with, I don't know if you want to call it tradition, but at least their traditional spending habits. And they did give him, what, $35 million, was it, to play this year? So I still feel like they're players in that shortstop market, and they could be just that dark horse team. Like you heard about the Rays maybe going after Freddie Freeman last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that, that they're necessarily going to, you know, as a dark horse, land one of these guys, but I wouldn't discount them doing it, particularly because Correa is just walking out the door, and they're in the exact same place they were, if not a little bit worse, than a year ago. Yeah, I will say I don't really quite understand that. So the, these odds are supposed to be based on the next team, not the team that they're currently with. Right. That they have Correa, they have the Twins second on this, this list, and he's the only one of these shortstops who has his, the team that he played for last season listed. Maybe they still uh, think he's an Astro? I, I know, maybe. <laughs> Where is Houston maybe. on the list? Yeah, yeah. well, Houston apparently is not on the list. But, um, yeah, so Dansby, <sighs> it, has, it has the Giants, then Cubs, uh, Phillies, Cardinals, Yankees. So those are the top uh, okay. five for them. Run those, run those back for me. The top so, five for so Dansby Swanson. So the top five for Dansby Swanson are the Giants, Cubs, Phillies, Cardinals, Yankees. And that's if he doesn't sign if with the Braves. he does not sign with the Braves. That's, that's how this whole thing works. That's interesting. I mean, and that is presupposing a lot in terms of all of these guys maybe not going back to their previous club. The only guys that I really – I guess a couple of these guys could. The Dodgers could pay Trey Turner, and I wouldn't think that they would be averse to doing it. I think that they would probably like to have Trey Turner back. I think most clubs would like to have Trey Turner around for the next five or six years. I think that Bogarts could still end up back in Boston. I mean, clearly, we're just not going to see Correa going back to the Minnesota Twins. That, to me, would be a, a real shocker just based on the market that I'm assuming that he's going to have out there and that he should have out there. So think about this, though, with the, the Red Sox. You move on for Dave Dombrowski, who goes to Philly and takes that team to the World Series, mm-hmm. and you bring in Heim Bloom, mm-hmm. who is coming from Tampa and is wor- used to operating within constraints financially. Do you bring in Heim Bloom just to go out 
and sign Rafael Devers and Xander Bogarts to extensions? Or do you bring him in because you want to be a little more analytical of the approach and, and maybe a, and not just throw money uh, at these issues? Yeah, but I feel like the Red Sox are a team that's going to be expected by their fan base that pumps well, a lot yeah, of money into like it. They last place. They are going to have to throw some money at this. And they threw some money last year at Trevor Story. And that's a move that... I don't know what the analytics said on that, but I would just be wary of being the GM that goes out there and hitches my wagon to the player leaving Coors Field for 81 of his games. Trevor's story seemed to kind of find himself as the year went along, and I'm not saying he can't hit at all outside of Coors Field, but we all know the difference between Rockies players at that ballpark and away, historically speaking. Has it changed maybe over some of the years with the humidor and whatnot? Maybe. I, I mean, if you want to do that, you're welcome to. But for the most part, it looks like a lot of these guys feast at home and then on the road, it's a little bit more normal. But like Nolan Arenado, he wasn't great offensively last year. But then in 2022, and this year, he really found himself offensively and is an MVP candidate, and, and for good reason. I just don't know that that's the move that I would have made if I'm high in bloom and you're telling me, like, think creatively. Trevor Story is a good defensive shortstop who has 20, 20, 30, 30 potential, could drive in 100 runs, could do a lot of things. And then you move him to second base. Yeah, and I think on that's that. and I think that's why Bogart's going somewhere else, right? Yeah. I don't think Bo, yeah. I, I think you sign Trevor Story with the intent and purpose that a year from now you get to go back to your natural position. And we but, watched him struggle while he was playing a yeah. different position. But would you rather have Trevor Story or Xander Bogarts if you had to choose between the two for the next, I don't know, six years? I think I'd rather have Trevor Story. Really? I, Outside I, of Coors Field. I just wouldn't, and that's just me. And we are, but we, but we haven't seen him play his natural position. <laughs> no, we in have Boston, not. and know how that affected him not performing early in the season. I'm not worried about him defensively speaking, and really, I'm not worried about him at all because I don't have to watch him every day. The Red Sox do, and that's the money that they spend. I guess I'm just wondering if I had the option of not only just the Xander Bogarts, but then expand this out. Would you rather have all that money go towards keeping your guys Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers? Or would you rather sign a big free agent contract with a guy leaving Coors Field? I just don't see necessarily the logic in that. But, again, I may just be stuck in my ways from what Coors Field has been in the past and what it's meant for most hitters after they've left there. Now, there are you know differences. I mean, Matt Holiday hit outside of Coors Field. Larry Walker hit after Coors Field. Just some of their biggest numbers just happen to come as members of the Colorado Rockies, and they shouldn't be punished for that, and they should be able to go out and sign if you've got them at an age and, and projected to be – contributing ball players and good contributors for the next five to seven years if you're going to sign them to long-term contracts. I'm just a little bit surprised that of the choices of extend or keep a, a Devers and a Bogarts or sign a story, just surprises me a little bit. Boston's got to win, man. they got to figure this thing they out. They do. Fifth place doesn't float in Boston. No, they're going to have to throw a little bit more money at that, and I'm sure that at some point they definitely will. When we come back, we will wrap up this edition of From the Diamond. We'll take a look at what else is happening around the world of baseball, including a little bit of Hall of Fame talk. It comes your way next on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney wrapping up. Another edition of the show. We appreciate you making us part of your weekend. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find us on the Odyssey app. You can also subscribe to Battery Power over on YouTube. We'd appreciate that. And uh, all of your comments and insights and all those good things, likes and follows and all the good stuff, shares, all that, right? Yeah. We're, we're Send all us your stuff. recipes, all that fun stuff. Yes, please. Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Uh, now, a recipe for success, typically for a contending team, is that as they get good and they enter that big window of contention, that they put more money back into the machine. And the Braves have certainly done that 
in moving into what is now Truist Park in 2017, where they were a club still very much in the midst of a rebuild, and then going into 2018, where they were a club that was very much a surprise National League East division winner, to now having won the Division Five consecutive years, to having won the World Series in 2021, to have had postseason success, and to have had success at the box office, at the gate, because Braves fans have been flocking to the battery and to Truist Park over the past few years in uh, numbers that we have not seen in a couple of decades as far as Braves fan turnouts concerned. Over 3.1 million fans, I believe, filtered into the park to watch the Braves this past season. All of that, plus all of the other things that go on with being a winning club and moving some merchandise has allowed the Braves to, I think, set up what is a pretty good financial situation. So one of the things that has come of this is that Terry McGurk has said, the Braves CEO, that, hey, we want to be a top-five payroll. That's how we envision ourselves. That's what we're moving towards. That does not mean it's going to happen overnight. It does not mean it's all going to happen this winter. But, Corey, it is one of the things that I think has to happen in order for the Braves to you know, step into being what they want to be and what is that thing, I mean, is that they're going to have to become one of those luxury tax teams at some point. Now, can they dance in and out of it? Can they reset it? Can they do all the things that some of the other clubs do? Of course. But at some point, they're going to have to cross that threshold, aren't they? They are. And, you know, I think when you look at what's already on the books for this year, uh, they've got a $192.5 million running uh, payroll right now, and that's based on some uh, arbitration expectations, right. their projections. That I mean, I, maybe we see Max Fried end up getting an ex- uh, getting an extension. He's penciled in uh, arbitration uh, projections at twelve point seven five million right now. So that could change. That that does not include whoever's going to be playing shortstop for right. this team. So obviously, you can add you know somewhere between twenty and, and twenty five million dollars. I think ideally on top of that, and number it's the two. only so, glaring yeah. hole on this on this yeah. entire roster. Exactly, and this does also include that ten million dollars that they sent to the Rangers for Jake Odorizzi. So. 192.5 running 40-man uh, payroll as we sit here uh, November 12th. And the first threshold as far as the luxury tax is concerned is the $230 million. And don't worry, I'm not going to bore you by reading all of the different rules and intricacies that go into the luxury tax threshold and the percentages and all of those things. Just know that there are various thresholds of it, and that doesn't mean that the Braves are going to skyrocket beyond the $230 million on to 40, 50, 60, so on and so forth. And a lot of these seem to have been put into place or at least tweaked when Steve Cohen took over with the Mets to kind of curtail or maybe just at least try to uh, discourage him from spending the kind of crazy money that he talked about at times. Yeah, this would, so this year, uh, the 40-man uh, competitive balance tax payroll for the Braves was $206 million. This was the first time they've ever been over $200 million. They were 172 right. in 2021. So they are trending toward that territory. And if you think about the extensions that have been doled out, mm-hmm. to stay competitive and to have somebody at shortstop that's going to give you the kind of production they've been used to having, they, as you mentioned, are going to be uh, just teetering in that territory of getting into those, uh, those uh, penalty uh, phases. And this might be one of those things that, as we know and as we have talked about, where and as I've said and will continue to say, not going to happen overnight. But when we do look at where this could go in terms of you got to get a shortstop, but another reason why maybe not to think that you're going to give 35 or $40 million to a Jacob deGrom over four or five years, whatever it is that he'd be asking for, is that you would pretty much skyrocket right on past and right on through that. And there are a lot of other things to consider. And I'm not saying that the Braves need to be pinching pennies necessarily, but they do want to be smart about how they spend this. And one of the big things that they have done to put themselves in position to sign a bigger or premium free agent when, if they decide to do it, making a trade for somebody that has a big contract like that, 
is having the cost certainty of not having to deal with going to arbitration with five or six young star guys like an Austin Riley, like a Spencer Strider, um, uh, Michael Harris, and uh, Matt Olson, all those guys. They don't have to deal with the arbitration there. They are in arbitration territory with Max Freed, but other than that, they don't have, now that Dansby Swanson is a true free agent, they don't have, I think, a big arbitration worry to consider beyond Max Freed. No, so you've got another year after this coming one of arbitration with Freed. So, you, so you, the team control, but I mean you don't yeah. have to worry about an escalating crazy salary that if you don't get the extension done, hey, what's this going to do to our yearly our year-over-year budget? No, but I think if we anticipate that there could be talks with, with Freed about an extension now, what does that do in terms of if you're going yeah. to sign the shortstop? And let's say that instead of Free getting 12.725 on those salary pro, uh, arbitration projections, what if Free gets 15 million mm-hmm. for each of the next two seasons? What if he gets 16, 17 million on top of that shortstop? Then you get a little bit further down the line of those competitive balance tax right. uh, thresholds. And clearly, that's where a lot of this work has been built. But it's just not likely to think that the Braves would be able to sign one of these big shortstops or trade for a shortstop making 20 or 25 million dollars a year. And then also sign a guy like Jacob DeGrom or even, I don't know, a, a year of Justin Verlander if it costs you, say, $37 million to lure him away from Houston, which I don't necessarily expect. But it's just knowing that you can spend, but when to spend, I think is going to be one of the great questions. And it's a question that's so much fun to ask when you spend a little bit of time in a rebuild that was not much fun for anybody, including the, the club, obviously. But also as Braves fans, how many years did you spend looking at it saying, all right, can't miss on this, can't miss on this, can't spend on that, don't have the money for this. How in the world are we going to contend? You're not having to have that discussion anymore. No, it, it seems, I mean, literally eons ago that you're talking about the B.J. Upton deal and saying, okay, this is the most that they've ever spent on a, right. on a free agent to come in here, and you think about that dead money, and, you know, think, I mean, it, it, it was bad for a little while, people, and now you've got all this cost certainty, all these guys that, you know, you know are going to be here for years, and that you can supplement with cost certainty is the biggest weapon that Alex Anthopoulos has in his arsenal. Yeah, and we'll continue to talk about this as the winter goes on and these decisions are made, and we see how the Braves payroll trends. So just make sure you're following along with us because we got a lot of winter to go and a lot of big decisions to be made, a lot of dominoes to fall all across free agency, across Major League Baseball. Now, I want to switch gears here and talk about something that, you know, I, I think I'm, I enjoy it still, but it can it can turn south very quickly, and that, of course, is the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame voting. And in particular, we're talking about the Contemporary Era Ballot. They have revamped the Veterans Committee into eras, and now certain eras are voted on, what, I believe every other year, every couple of years, whatever it may be. And it's not always the same guys on the ballot each and every year. And there's a little bit more structure to it because I think that the Hall of Fame needs to realize and has realized that there is an awful lot of players since 1950 that are not getting the consideration and the ability to gain admittance to the Hall of Fame than perhaps the first decade and a half or so of Hall of Fame voting. It is woefully, I mean, we're talking about, what, 60 or more percent of the Hall of Famers enshrined as of right now, their careers began before 1950. And you can't tell me that in the last 70 years that the game has not come along and that there haven't been equally as great of players in the last 72 years as there were in, say, 1905. It's funny, you and I were having this conversation a couple days ago. Yeah. My son and I were watching the baseball Ken Burns documentary on MLB Network. It's been done now in, in high def. It looks fantastic. Yeah. How much time they spend on the early 1900s uh-huh. on that show, and you think about the love affair with that era of baseball, I think it just speaks to exactly what you're saying. And I love it. And, and baseball, I mean, nostalgia is something that I think it goes with baseball as well or better than perhaps any other sport. It's just part of the game. But to honor as you go along the evolution of the game and recognize the accomplishments that may not be possible in today's game that 
you know, God bless Babe Ruth for everything he was doing in the 19-teens, the 1920s, 1930s. We don't see players like that come along and be able to do it because the competition level across all of baseball, no matter what you want to talk about after expansion, all of that has changed. The player has evolved. Everything is in athletics has evolved in every single sport. They don't wear leather helmets in the NFL anymore either. <laughs> a lot of things have changed. So this contemporary era ballot is a lot of names that you're going to recognize from the very recent baseball writers ballot and guys who have just fallen off in the case of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling. Some guys who not too long ago fell off in the case of Rafael Palmero and Albert Bell. And then you get to another one who didn't fall off too terribly long ago in Fred McGriff, the former Brave and the, a guy who was tied with Lou Gehrig with 493 career home runs, which I would think is a pretty good contemporary. And there's a lot of other counting stats and markers that would point to a strong Hall of Fame case for McGriff. And it just never uh, showed up on the baseball writer's ballot because of a variety of reasons we're not going to waste the end of the show on. In addition to McGriff, Dale Murphy, and Don Mattingly. That's the eight players on this ballot. And, you know, Dale Murphy was on the show a couple of weeks ago. I've had the great opportunity, as of you, to get to talk to Dale about all kinds of things, not just his playing career, but the way that he sees the game, the things that he has done. You just want to have more of that guy around, and I've always felt like that should count for something. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Dale Murphy's career trumps anybody else in the 80s, but I am going to tell you, when you look at that decade, his name should be pretty high up on the greatest players from that 10-year span of baseball. And maybe I'm an air quotes big hall guy because I think that there are 15 or 20 guys that should be in that aren't in right now, and maybe we should make that happen, and it would still be the top 1% of all of baseball. But to not convolute this any further, I've had the opportunity to talk with him about the Hall of Fame. I don't bring it up all the time, but I wanted to play this clip. I'm just so fascinated by the way that he looks at the Hall of Fame. It's not something that defines him, but it is something that I think it makes it almost more of an honor you'd like to see bestowed on a player like this then maybe one of those guys that is just chasing it and chasing it and chasing it, like, say, a Pete Rose. But here's Dale Murphy. I think about it. I mean, I get asked a, a lot about it. First of all, I like to say that, you know, I was on the ballot for 15 years, which is, you know, it's kind of unique to qualify for that. So that's I was really lucky to be there for 15 years, and I've had, you know, a lot of people have been supportive. You know, it's just the nature of it. It's very, very difficult to get in, and you got to get 75%. Uh, you'd probably hear a different answer from me if I had like 65%, but I think the most percent I got was in the 20s somewhere. So I'm not exactly knocking on the door. Uh, maybe something will happen with the Veterans Committee, but I'll tell you the other thing that, that I think about, too, is that there's a lot of guys. And see, and it's never been about just him, and I do think there are a lot of guys. Some of them are on this ballot. Some of them, in the case of a Lou Whitaker, a Dave Parker, Dick Allen, and a lot of other guys, are not on the ballot or not on this contemporary era, but... I just feel like the Hall of Fame in baseball is better for Dale Murphy having been a part of it. And I think that this is an interesting lineup to be put where you have some guys that have the suspicion of the steroid era or just the responsibility of the steroid era really attached to their names. And then somebody who's about as clean as clean gets. I really am fascinated by this, though, because last year the the air committees put in four players. That was the most they had ever done since 1971, yeah. and that comes on the heels of Harold Baines and his questionable uh, entry to the Hall yeah. of Fame. So I think as that is the floor, I think it really helps guys like Murphy and McGriff, who's just I think he's going to be benefit of the doubt there for finishing seven home runs from that threshold, that milestone uh, of 500. I think. Just the fact of last year and what we saw with that committee allowing so many guys in, I think there's a softening based off Harold Baines that really is going to help the guys this year.
I don't even want to say it's a softening of the stance. I think it needs to be kind of a realization yes. and, and a rethinking of how exactly we look at this. And I'm not saying everybody that has a couple of three good years, put them in the Hall of Fame. What I'm saying is that everybody that has seven, eight, nine years, everybody that makes some contributions to the game. I mean, Dusty Baker has a hybrid case in, in the case of him being a manager and a player. Now, was he going to get in as a player? No. But you throw in what he did as a manager as well, and it kind of starts to enter into the Joe Torre. I don't know, wing, if you want to call it that. But Joe Torre also won more World Series than a lot of other managers could ever dream of, and that factors in there as well. But I just feel like the Hall of Fame, it is a Hall of Fame. And as much as we want to talk about a Hall of Numbers, with the evolution of this game, we may not ever see some of these numbers again. So I think it's a moving target, if that makes sense. It's going to be fascinating. These are contemporaries that are part of this process. They know the guys that didn't do it right and the guys that did. So I think that's why it's going to help Murph and McGriff in the long run. I think it could help him a lot. And if you are just a stickler for whether or not Fred McGriff has 500 home runs, you want to put in his postseason work, he's got well over 500 home runs, and I think that that counts. And if Fred McGriff came out of retirement like Mr. 3000, Bernie Mac style, and hit seven more home runs, he'd pass nobody on the all-time home run list either. So that's just another thing to think about and just one of the many things that we like to throw out your way right here on From the Diamond. As always, we appreciate you making us part of your weekend. We look forward to coming to you again next Saturday as we'll have a jam-packed show full of hot stove and free agency and perhaps some Braves news. We always like to throw that in as well as that is a big part of what we do here. Corey, as always, I appreciate your uh, patronage here and and your tutelage when it comes to some of the uh, statistics that even I need help let's, with. Let's do it again next week. All right. I look forward to it. Abe Gordon, as always, we appreciate you helping us out, keeping us on the rails here. Make sure you look for From the Diamond wherever you get your favorite podcast. You can also find us on the Odyssey app, and you can also find us on your radio next week right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.